Thanks for listening to the weekly teaching podcast for City Church in Knoxville, Tennessee. It is our desire to be a Jesus-centered family on mission. If you live here in Knoxville or are ever visiting the area, we'd love to have you with us at one of our Sunday gatherings. You can find out more at citychurchknox.com. If you're interested in giving financially to help us reach more people in our city, you can give easily at citychurchknox.com give. And finally, if this teaching is helpful to you in any way, we'd love to hear about it. You can email us at info at citychurchknox.com. With that being said, here's this week's teaching. The dictionary defines cynicism as an inclination to believe that people are motivated purely by self-interest. It's this inherent skepticism and suspicion of everyone. And while I think that definition of cynicism is certainly helpful as a starting point, I I think we could also expand the definition just a little bit, because cynicism in my experience isn't just suspicion towards people and people's motivations, it's really a suspicion towards most anything. People, experiences, systems, organizations, churches, truth statements, belief systems, we could go on and on with the list. Cynicism is an inherent distrust towards any and all of that. It's the posture that insists either everything already is bad or will turn out bad in the end. Nothing is ever as good as it seems, or if it is, it won't stay that way for long, just give it some time. I once heard someone say that a cynic is a person who smells flowers and looks around for a coffin. That's cynicism, in essence. Cynicism is the belief that nothing in this world is truly worth pursuing or being excited about because nothing is ever what it seems on the surface. And if there was a book of the Bible written with cynics in mind, it would be the book of Ecclesiastes. So turn with me, if you've got a Bible, to Ecclesiastes chapter 1. If you don't know where that book is, stop by the table of contents on your way there. No shame at all in that. But while you're getting there to Ecclesiastes chapter 1, let me just tell you a little bit about the book. Uh, If you've never read Ecclesiastes, if you're not that familiar with it, uh, it's a very, very interesting book of the Bible. Because in this book, the main character, who who is just simply called the teacher in the story, just lays out his very sober take on life in general. He's essentially a guy with an unlimited amount of wealth and resources who decides to set out on an experiment of sorts. His experiment is to see if there is anything in life truly worth pursuing. Anything, in his words, under the sun that is at all worth being excited about at all. And in the experiment, just as a fair warning, he pretty much tries out everything that there is. So accomplishments, work, relationships, pleasure, wisdom, education. Basically, if you can name it, the teacher tries to squeeze meaning and life and purpose and joy out of it in this experiment. And what we are about to read in Ecclesiastes chapter 1 is his conclusion after trying that entire experiment. So let's take a look, starting in chapter 1, verse 1. The words of the teacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Utterly meaningless, everything is meaningless. He's a real state your thesis at the beginning of the paper kind of guy. (laughs) 
He's also evidently pretty big on repetition, uh, meaningless, meaningless, utterly meaningless, everything is meaningless. It's like, my dude, we get it. We heard you the first time, actually. Now, for clarity, that word meaningless there in the NIV translation isn't exactly what he says in the original language. That's somewhere between a translation and an interpretation. The translators have kind of tried to help us out with what he was trying to say. The word that he uses in Hebrew is the word hebel. Can you say that? Hebel. So it's the word that was used for vapor or mist or, or breath in the Hebrew language. So think about some of the cooler days that we've had here in Knoxville over the past couple months, not this week, because this week was a preview of summer, but prior to that, uh, think about the days that are so cold where you walk outside, you breathe out, and you can see your breath sort of float off into the air. That's hebel in Hebrew. It's, it's a, a vapor, it's a, it's a mist, it's like you can see it for a split second, and then it's gone. As soon, what, what the author is saying is that as soon as these things materialize in your life, the things that you're chasing after, as soon as they materialize and you try to derive joy and life and meaning and purpose from them, it's like as soon as you do that, they vanish right before your eyes. In other words, he, he's saying that none of those things in life end up being anywhere near as good as they seem on the surface. None of it is what it appears to be, and eventually it will all just disappear before your eyes. That's what he's saying. Now, he's going to go on in the passage. Look with me, continuing in verse 3. What do people gain from all their labors at which they toil under the sun? Generations come and generations go, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun sets and it hurries back to where it rises. The wind blows to the south and turns to the north. Round and around it goes, ever returning on its course. All streams flow to the sea, yet the sea is never full. To the place streams come from, there they return again. So here, the, the teacher is just observing nature itself, and he's basically drawing the same conclusions from that that he did in verses 1 and 2. He, he thinks that evidently even nature itself echoes his conclusion that all of life is ultimately meaningless and pointless. Each day, he says, the sun rises, and then it sets, and then all of it happens again the next day. Nothing to see. The wind blows one way, then it blows the other way, and then it does the whole thing again. The streams flow to the sea, but the sea is never full. To him, it seems like even nature itself, even creation itself, never accomplishes, never achieves anything at all. It never arrives. It, it never reaches a satisfactory endpoint. It just happens over and over again in exactly the same way, day after day, week after week, wash, rinse, repeat. It's all the same. It's all pointless. Verse 8, all things are wearisome, more than one can say. The eye never has enough of seeing, nor the ear is full of hearing. What has been will be again. What has been done will be done again. There is nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which one can say, look, this is something new? Nope. It was here already long ago. It was here before our time. No one remembers the former generations, and even those yet to come will not be remembered by those who follow them. 
So this is where I think we can see the teacher's cynical spirit displayed really clearly in the story. Because a cynic, when presented with something new and different and exciting, they tend to respond with, yeah, I've seen that. I've heard that. New technology, kind of overrated, if you ask me. New idea, no, probably just a new iteration of an old one. New invention, probably only a matter of time before capitalism takes a hold of it. New experience, probably not as cool as it seems, if I had to guess. That's the cynical spirit, unimpressed, unmoved by any of it. Now, I want us to zero in on this next part because I think what we're about to read gives us some incredible insight into cynicism that we'll unpack in depth here in a moment. So skip down with me to verse 16 in the passage. I said to myself, look, I have increased in wisdom more than anyone who has ruled over Jerusalem before me. I have experienced much of wisdom and knowledge Then I applied myself to the understanding of wisdom and also of madness and folly, but I learned that this too is a chasing after the wind. Verse 18, for, and I want you to notice this next part, with much wisdom comes much sorrow. The more knowledge, the more grief. Notice that last verse again. With much wisdom comes much sorrow. The more knowledge, the more grief. Here's the idea that I think the teacher is getting at in that verse, and I think it's the framework behind an awful lot of cynicism out there. The more you know, the more cynical you become. The more you know, the more cynical you become. Often, I think that is how it seems to work. Now, when I say the more you know, and and I think also when Ecclesiastes talks about this idea, I think we're talking about both book smarts and street smarts, to use common lingo, right? So information intake and also life experience. That's the idea here. I think often what happens is that the more you learn about life, the more likely you are to respond to it all with cynicism. Cynicism is often a response to some combination of knowledge and experience, You become cynical when you have heard and experienced enough of life to think that cynicism is the only rational response to it all. Uh, When you've been hurt one too many times, you begin assuming that every person is eventually going to hurt you. When you've seen one too many corrupt leaders, you begin to assume that every leader is actually corrupt. When you have been let down by one too many life experiences, you assume that every experience is just a letdown waiting to happen. Cynicism is often a response to knowledge and experience. And in many ways, it is a natural, understandable response to it all. We think we know what is going to happen in our life or in our world, and so we begin bracing ourselves for all of that by expecting the worst. But here's the problem with that mindset. We as human beings are notorious for overestimating what we know. Absolutely notorious for it. We listen to a podcast about something and we assume we're basically experts after listening to the podcast, right? 
we meet a few people and we assume we know what all people are like afterwards. We have a few experiences, we assume we know how all experiences will eventually turn out. We overestimate what we know, often. So really, we might want to add a few words, a couple words to that statement from a moment ago in order to make it a tad more accurate. Here's how I actually think it works. The more you think you know, the more cynical you become. The more you think you know. I think that honestly is a lot closer to the truth. See, a lot of the problem is that cynicism often gets mistaken for wisdom or at least closely associated with it, right? So we often assume that if someone is smart, they should be cynical. And if they're cynical, that must mean that they're smart. The mature people, many of us seem to think, are the ones who are unimpressed and unamused by everything in life. Those who have grown jaded towards life in general. Those people to us seem like they're above the fray, right? And you might disagree with that, but here's how I know it's true, because the inverse is also true. Often we will see someone who demonstrates genuine excitement about something in life, and in those moments, the cynic in us almost pities them, right? So, so we assume that they're only excited about things because of how naive they are about the world. Oh, poor thing, we think. They haven't been hurt yet, right? And that how, how we respond, at least internally? They just don't know how life works yet. Just bless their hearts, right? So I want to teach you what might be a new word this morning. It's the word scoffer. It's the word that the Bible uses quite a bit, especially in the wisdom books, like Psalms and Proverbs and some other places as well. A scoffer in the Bible's vocabulary <clears throat> is someone who enjoys mocking things, who, who looks at most everything with disdain or suspicion. Uh, if you constantly feel the need to pick things apart or tear things down or sarcastically mock things that other people like, the scriptures would call what you are doing scoffing. So while a scoffer is, is not exactly the same thing as a cynic, there's obviously a whole lot of overlap between those two things, right? The Venn diagram between those two is pretty close to a circle, right? So with that in mind, I want, I want you to take a look at a couple of things on the screen that the scriptures teach about scoffers. First one from Proverbs 14 says this, a scoffer seeks wisdom in vain, but knowledge is easy for a man of understanding. So a scoffer actually can't acquire wisdom because they think they already know and understand everything. They have no ability to grow in their understanding in any substantial ways. Next one, this one also from Proverbs. A scoffer does not like to be reproved. He will not go to the wise. So similarly, a scoffer has a real issue receiving any type of correction or confrontation from other people. They, they don't like experiencing that because they think they already understand everything there is to understand. They're, they're too smart, they're too knowledgeable already to need any help from other people seeing themselves more accurately. And if you just heard what I just said and what the Proverbs just said and you thought to yourself, no, not me, I'm cynical, but I'm not like that. I know how to receive correction. 
hear me out, you may have just proven those verses right. (laughs) Some of you will get that later. But if I could just do a mashup of those two verses, and really almost everything that the Proverbs specifically teach about a scoffer, if I could just combine all of that into one idea, it would be this. While the cynic seems to possess wisdom, their posture actually prevents it. Their posture actually prevents them growing in wisdom. Cynics might have the appearance of wisdom, when you meet them. You might think, wow, this person is really wise. They have lots of life experience that they've learned from. But they don't actually possess real wisdom. A a cynic gives off the vibe that there's nothing you can tell them that they will be interested in or convinced by. But ironically, that is the very posture that prevents them from being able to grow in wisdom. If you already think you know and have heard it all, there's no reason to listen to additional data. Cynicism at its core is fake wisdom. But the problem actually goes even deeper than that with cynicism. Cynicism also robs you of most substantial joy. You see, most joy in life depends on your ability to enjoy things, right? But the cynic has already decided that there's not really anything worth enjoying. Everything's overrated, nothing is what it seems, so you've just got to grin and bear your way through life. C.S. Lewis, writing back in the day, talked about all of this, this general disposition towards life. He used the language of seeing through things, that's what he called it. So have you ever known somebody who sees through things? Yeah, I don't know about that. I'm not convinced by that. I'm skeptical of that. I don't know what I think about that. I think probably somebody's trying to sell me something there. That's the posture of seeing through things. Now, on some level, that is just the ability to think critically about life, right? And C.S. Lewis acknowledges when he writes that sometimes it can be good to see through things. Some things in the world really aren't what they seem, and the ability to realize that sometimes is just the practice of having discernment. That can be an okay thing. But at the same time, he actually cautions against the practice of seeing through everything. So he uses the example of being in your house and looking through a window to the world outside. He says, you know, it's good that we can see through the window in our house. It's good that the window is transparent because that enables us to see what's on the other side. Grass, nature, plants, everything going on outside. That's a good thing. But then he says... What if you could see through all of that stuff too? What if the grass was transparent? What if the trees were transparent? What if everything in the world was transparent and you could see through everything? C.S. Lewis makes the point that you can't go on seeing through things forever because in his words, to see through everything is the same as to see nothing. He's being a bit philosophical, but here's what I think he's saying. If you're always jaded about everything, you'll eventually be joyful about nothing. So let me posit a question for us. What actually causes cynicism? What causes it? If we're going to be able to do anything about its presence in our lives, I think we've got to find the root of it. Because here's what I've realized. Uh, Pretty much nobody wakes up one day and decides to be cynical. 
That's just not how it works. Nobody goes, you know what, I'm just going to start being jaded towards everything all of the time. That feels like a fun way to go through life. It's generally not what happens. Cynicism usually is not a conscious decision as much as it's a reaction. And as best as I can tell, here is what it is usually a reaction to. You ready? Disappointment. Cynicism is generally a reaction to disappointment. Most of us that grow cynical, myself included, do so out of a place of deep, profound, and and usually repeated disappointment. Hurt and disappointment in our lives. Now, I think that disappointment can take a lot of different forms. So sometimes, it's disappointment in people or organizations that we trusted that then let us down. Sometimes it's that. Other times, it's a disappointment in a situation or an experience that we went through. Other times still, I think it's that we tried to find life and joy and purpose in other places, and every single thing that we try comes up short. Honestly, I think that's pretty close to what happened to the teacher in Ecclesiastes. So one writer put it like this, talking about this whole book of the Bible. He said, cynicism is the god of the thinking person. In Ecclesiastes, the teacher battled the gods of money, sex, and power, but the one that came nearest to owning his soul was cynicism. Cynicism is the temple to which we finally come after stopovers at the houses of all the other gods. It is the temple at the end of the temple row. So I think that's pretty deep right there. If it was confusing to you, here's what I think he's saying. Cynicism is often where we end up after everything else that we try in life fails to satisfy. So we try to find life in relationships. We try one relationship after another, and they all end horribly or bare minimum. They just don't bring the amount of life and joy that we thought they would when we entered into them. So we become cynical about relationships. We try to find work, or we try to find value and life in our work, our career path. So we try to squeeze all the life we can out of our career, and that doesn't work. So we become cynical about work as well. We try to find life in accomplishments or friendships or notoriety or romance or sexual experiences. You name it, there's virtually no end to the places that we try to find life in, but all of them come up short and we grow cynical about them. Or maybe you're like the teacher in Ecclesiastes. Maybe you've tried a variety of different things at different points in your life. You've gone from one thing to the next, trying to find something out there that will satisfy, something out there that will make your life make sense, and then when enough of them disappointed you, you just grew cynical about it all. You grew cynical about life in general. You ended up in the place of the teacher in Ecclesiastes chapter 1. Nothing is satisfying. Nothing is lasting. Nothing is worth it. It's all a vapor. But whether it's that kind of disappointment or another type altogether, it seems like cynicism is almost always the soul's response to disappointment. Or at least the attempt to avoid future disappointment. And that, to me, is what makes cynicism such a tempting lie to believe. 
Because as most of us know, the most powerful lies are usually partial truths, right? And the truth is that to be sure, a lot of the human experience can be profoundly disappointing. The truth is that a lot of organizations and systems and beliefs are indeed untrustworthy. The truth is that everything, whether it's accomplishments or career or romance or friendships, all of those things on their own are ultimately unfulfilling. And the truth is that a lot of people out there are indeed corrupt to their core. In fact, the Bible would go a step further than that. It would say that all of us are bent towards evil apart from God's redemptive work in our lives. So is it true that the world is a broken place? Yes. Is it true that people are sinful and broken and hurtful? Yes. Is it true that many experiences ultimately disappoint? Yes. Those conclusions about the world around us are not wrong. Cynicism is a powerful lie because its foundation isn't entirely untrue. The problem is that it is a partial truth. The problem is that it only tells exactly half of the story. So if you currently in this room this morning feel disappointed and let down by the human experience, I've actually got good news for you. You are exactly halfway to understanding the one true story of the world. But for the other half, you will need the story of the gospel. You see, the gospel, the the one true story of the world, doesn't try to hide the fact that life is filled with disappointment. Not in the least. In fact, this book right here is very, very honest about that reality. This book is filled with story after story after story detailing the disappointment of life and the brokenness of the world in gory detail. In fact, it starts in the third chapter of the whole book. God puts a man and a woman in a garden. He gives them everything that they could ever need or want. He entrusts them with it all, and then all hell breaks loose. Disappointment everywhere, brokenness everywhere, sin and corruption everywhere, broken trust, broken relationships, all of that, things get incredibly bad, incredibly corrupt. But it was also in that same moment that God set into motion a plan to do something about every single bit of the disappointment. A plan that began with a promise to Eve in the garden and would be fulfilled by a man hanging on a cross, followed by an empty tomb. A moment that no doubt Jesus was referring to when he said this in the Gospel of John. In this world, you will have trouble, but take heart. Or if we wanted, we could translate that, do not grow cynical, do not grow discouraged, do not grow jaded, because I, Jesus, have overcome the world. Now notice with me in that passage, it doesn't say in the world you won't have trouble. Some of us wish that it did. It also doesn't say I have overcome the world so that you won't have trouble. The first part of the verse actually is written in the language of a promise. In this world you will have trouble, guaranteed. But the second part of the verse is a promise too. I have overcome the world. You see, cynicism is the view of the world that starts and stops with Genesis chapter three. Everything in life is a profound disappointment, the end. The gospel gives us the fuller story. 
Everything in the world is a profound disappointment, which is why Jesus is in the process of making all things new. In this world, you will have trouble, but take heart because he has overcome the world. And if Jesus has indeed overcome the world, as he says, I think that changes things for us. It it completely reframes everything, in fact. It means that all of a sudden, life isn't purposeless. It means that life isn't joyless. It means that life isn't only ever disappointing. It means that there are things in life worth pursuing. There are things worth giving your life to. You see, the teacher in Ecclesiastes really only gives us one side of the story. Because remember, his goal, his experiment was to see if he could derive any life, any joy, any purpose outside of God. He uses the phrase under the sun over and over again in the story to make that point. He concludes that there is very little to be excited about under the sun. Outside of life with God, everything is pretty much pointless and in vain. But followers of Jesus live their life with God. We don't live our life only under the sun. We live our lives in response, as we say often around here, in response to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. We live into the relationship and the reality that that made possible for us. So in light of that, I want you to take a look at 1 Corinthians 15. This is verses 57 and 58. It says this. But thanks be to God. He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm, or we could say, take heart. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. According to that passage, the death and resurrection of Jesus means that nothing is in vain. Even when it feels like it is, Even when a cynical spirit and a cynical world tells you that it is, if Jesus is risen from the grave and he is making all things new, that means cynicism is simply unnecessary. So that's the alternative story to cynicism. That's what we have to understand if we want to get anywhere in our battle against it. But the question then is how do we live out of that story instead? How do we learn to live in response to that story of the gospel? And and then inversely, how do we resist the pull towards a cynical spirit? I'll give you three ideas to consider before we're done this morning. First, to resist cynicism, I would encourage you to bring your disappointment to God. Bring your disappointment to God. So as we've already noted, cynicism is birthed out of disappointment, let down, frustration with the world the way that it is and being burnt by it all. Uh, As the comedian George Carlin said it, behind every cynic is a disappointed idealist. And as Jesus already mentioned in the Gospel of John, there's no way around that disappointment. In this world, there will be trouble. So if there isn't a way around being disappointed, what should we do with that disappointment such that it doesn't morph into cynicism over time? The answer I think the scriptures would give us is that we take every bit of our disappointment directly to God, as in unloaded on him. Do you know what the most common type of prayer is in the book of Psalms? Right in the middle of your Bible? Prayers of complaint and lament. Most common form of prayer that we find in that book. 
prayers of God's people taking their pain and their hurt and their confusion and their disappointment about life and telling God precisely how they feel about it. There's some uncomfortable stuff in the Psalms. I don't know if you've ever read it chapter by chapter. You read parts of it and you're like, I don't think you're supposed to say that to God, actually. <laughs> if I had to guess. I mean, I know it's the Bible, but I, I'm not sure you're supposed to say stuff like that. But here's what I'll tell you. I, I would venture to say that if those are the Psalms that we find in our Bible, it sure does seem like those are okay prayers to pray to God. And I would venture to say that the Holy Spirit put those prayers in the Bible so that we would know that we could pray those types of prayers to God. I can't help but think that some of us grow cynical in part because we don't think there's any worthwhile outlet for our disappointment and our hurt. And I'm telling you this morning that a relationship with God through Jesus is that outlet. It's a lot of other things too, but it is at least that outlet. So take it all to God, every bit of your disappointment. Tell him exactly how you feel about it. And here's what's gonna happen as you do. I'm not saying if you do it one time, but I'm saying if you cultivate this practice in your life, a lot of the time, God is going to respond to that prayer by doing something about your hurt and your disappointment, bringing you healing and health and sometimes even solutions in the midst of it. But even in the times that he doesn't do all of that, do you know what is going to happen as you take that disappointment to God? It's gonna help guard you against growing cynical and bitter and resentful about all of it. Instead of just bottling it up, you have an outlet for it. Uh, God might even show you some things about yourself in the process as you bring that disappointment to God. All of that is the power of prayer. Second practical way to resist cynicism in your life. Learn the art of curiosity. Learn the art of curiosity. So I can't remember where I read this. I tried to Google it and could not find it. Maybe some of you are better Googlers than I am and you can help attribute this source. But I once heard someone say that cynical people aren't curious and curious people can't grow cynical. And I think that's spot on. Cynicism and curiosity usually are almost mutually exclusive. It goes back to what we said earlier about the scoffer, right? So if you think you already understand everything there is to understand about the world, you will easily grow cynical and jaded about all of it. But curiosity is the opposite of that posture. Scoffers say about the world, yeah, I've seen it all and I'm kind of over it all. Curious people say there's so much that I don't yet know and I can't wait to learn about it. Do you hear how different those two mindsets are. So if you want to resist cynicism in your life, you need to learn to cultivate curiosity in your life. Practice a posture that admits, you know what? There may be things I don't yet know. There may be things I know but don't yet fully understand. There may be experiences out there that fall outside of the experiences I've already had. There may be data points out there that fall outside of my preconceived notions about the world. All of that may be true, and I can't wait to learn more about everything I don't know yet. Uh, Stephen Colbert uh, once put it like this, which I found comforting because I actually think of Stephen Colbert as sometimes a little bit cynical. Um, here's what he said. 
Cynicism masquerades as wisdom, but it is the farthest thing from it. Because cynics don't learn anything. Cynicism is a self-imposed blindness, a rejection of the world because we are afraid it will hurt us or disappoint us. Cynics always say no, but saying yes begins things. Saying yes is how things grow. Saying yes leads to knowledge. So for as long as you have the strength to say yes. I feel like that could be in like a graduation speech or something, right? Maybe it was. I don't know where the quote came from. I don't know when he said it. That's good. And I think what he means by saying yes is being willing to take the mindset of there's lots I don't know yet. There's lots I haven't experienced yet. And some of those things may actually challenge my existing assumptions about life. Uh, I'm going to get just a tad esoteric here, so hang with me if you can. Uh, But if cynicism is the belief that everyone has a hidden agenda and every belief system is inherently flawed, well, then wouldn't those conclusions also apply to me, the cynical person? Doesn't that mean that I have a hidden agenda behind my cynicism and that it's not just a natural conclusion about life? Doesn't that mean that my cynicism as a worldview is inherently flawed too? But you see, curiosity breaks that mold. It breaks you out of that prison. Curiosity reminds us that there is an entire world outside of my current knowledge and understanding and experience, and there is plenty to to learn that I do not yet understand. So learn to practice curiosity. And I'll just add this. uh, If you can learn to practice curiosity, you are just a stone's throw away from another substantial remedy to cynicism, which is gratitude. If you can stay curious long enough to learn more and more about the world around you, the people around you, you may just discover some things to stand in awe of and be grateful for instead of becoming cynical about. But that one's for free. Moving on. Third thing I think you've got to do if you want to resist cynicism in your life, look through the lens of the gospel. Look through the lens of the gospel. So I'll try to be brief on this one. I say that all the time and it never works. But I'll try to be brief on this one since I just want to echo what I said a bit earlier. To fight the partial story that cynicism tells, you have to learn to look through the lens of the full story that's given to us in the scriptures, which is the good news of Jesus. As we mentioned, the gospel tells us first that not everything will go bad. That's a selective reading of the data. Plenty of things actually turn out pretty great if you give them time. Second, the gospel tells us that not everyone is corrupt or motivated by self-interest. Some people, in fact, are quite incredible, selfless, generous, namely people who have been transformed by the gospel to be that way. Now, I'm not saying they're perfect, I'm not saying they won't ever disappoint you. I'm not saying they won't ever do hurtful things or things that you interpret as hurtful. But I am saying that they are in the process of being made new in the image of Jesus. And that is an absolutely beautiful thing to witness up close if you can bring yourself to do it. Third, the gospel tells us that even in the situations where everything really does turn out horribly, 
Even then, the gospel tells us that God can still use it for our good. For those who know and follow Jesus. So I think of that famous passage. We circle back to it a lot around here. That famous passage in Romans chapter 8 where Paul says, we know that in all things. How many things? All things. God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. And listen, just real quickly, uh, I don't throw that verse out there haphazardly this morning. I know some of your stories. I know that you have been through absolute hell. I know that some of you are currently going through it. So I am not telling you, if that is you, if that is your season, if that is your circumstance, or if it has been in the past, I am not telling you this morning to just put on a happy face and sing Romans 8 to yourself. I don't even know how you would sing Romans 8. I don't know if there's a song. I'm sure there is. I'm sure a Christian has written it at some point. That is not what I'm saying this morning. I'm saying all of this because I want you to know that even in the place your life is in right now, even that place is not beyond God's presence and God's purpose for you if you are in Christ. And while that does not take away the pain, while it doesn't take away the hurt, it doesn't take away the disappointment, it absolutely does change how you think about it. So if I could just leave us with one thing this morning before we're done, it would be this. Uh, I have no desire to turn cynics into optimists this morning. There's nowhere in scripture that I am aware of that says God just wants us to walk around ignoring the hurt and disappointment in the world or in our own lives. I don't know of that verse. I do not think God wants any of us to become blind optimists but I do think he wants us to be hopeful realists. I think he wants us to acknowledge the brokenness of our world and then be able to deal with it head on. I think he wants us to understand that the world is indeed a broken place, but then to become people by God's grace, by the power of his spirit that stare at the trouble of this world right in the face and declare to it that Jesus has overcome it all. And if that's true, we can overcome it all through him as well. The world we currently occupy is both horrible and hopeful, which makes the gospel the perfect story to make sense of it all because the cross, too, was both horrible and hopeful. And with that story as our lens, I really do believe that we have the ability to navigate whatever is ahead of us in our lives, in our world, in our relationships, whatever the case may be. So in just a moment, we're gonna sing, we're gonna respond, we're gonna celebrate all of this. And as we do, we're gonna go to the tables here in the room, we're gonna take the bread and the cup if you're a follower of Jesus. We're gonna enjoy this practice that tells us that even as the worst was happening, as Jesus hung on that cross, Jesus was making provision for each of us through it. And as we go to the tables on our own or together with others, however you want to do it, we remember the provision for every season, every circumstance, 
in our life as followers of Jesus. So if that is the story that you have chosen to live your life by, however imperfect it may seem, you're invited to the tables and you're invited to stand and celebrate with us as we respond. Let me pray for us.